Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow Exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times Somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago Just to up and leave it It's the time of year, the best time of the year, when listeners all across the northern part of our listenership are starting their fall upland hunting seasons. Sharp tail season, prairie chicken season in Nebraska, Montana, uh, parts north and west have opened up in early September, North Dakota, South Dakota opening up, rough grouse season opening up mid-September, but our our friends in the quail range have to live vicariously through Instagram for a while or some other means of uh, following the upland seasons as they open up and uh, prime time comes to each part of the country. Um, and I bring up quail season or quail country because that's the focus of today's episode of On the Wing podcast. I'm joined by a trio of quail guys who all have a connection to the University of Tennessee. And we'll talk about how this time of the year, early fall, is a great time to manage your land for bobwhite quail and many other species that relate to that bobwhite quail habitat, particularly in the southeastern United States. Joining me for this episode Andy Edwards, Quail Forever program manager and the uh, takeover host <laughs> of the podcast today. Andy, thanks for joining. Thank you, Bob. Uh, why don't you give a, a, a brief intro um, to uh, of our two yeah, guests man. and then we can pass the baton to sure. each of them. Joining me as well or joining us as well, Dr. Craig Harper, professor at Extension Wildlife Specialist uh, with the School of Natural Resources at the University of Tennessee. And also Mr. John Grucci private lands program coordinator for Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. So um, with that, I'll, I'll do a, a few second intro of myself. I've been on here a few times, but I'm the program manager for Quail Forever, which most days means um, uh, cat herder or, uh, or uh, <laughs> you know, chief uh, uh, bucket carrier for issues that we've got that we're working on. We're trying to get some things, uh, you know, I'm trying to elevate the Quail Forever brand within the Pheasants Forever um, under the umbrella of Pheasants Forever, but also just work with our partners, whether that be corporate partners or um, researchers, uh, agencies, wildlife professionals, just work with all the folks out in the field to elevate the brand, the Quail Forever. So um, really excited to have, have our guests here today. And with that, we'll hand it over to Dr. Harper and let him introduce himself. Andy, good to see you and talk with you. Uh, you as well, Bob, and, and of course, John. Um, as you mentioned, uh, my name's Craig Harper, a professor of wildlife management at the University of Tennessee in the School of Natural Resources and Extension Wildlife Specialist. I've been in that role since 1998, uh, work primarily with uh, extension agents and professionals in natural resources uh, agencies, such as state wildlife agencies and federal agencies as well. And of course, do a lot of work with with private landowners. And uh, 
quail is something that, of course, is uh, of interest to, to many landowners across Tennessee, uh, experienced really, really big declines over the past two or three decades. And, you know, we're working to improve that where we can and on lands where it's appropriate. So uh, happy to be with you and, and talk about some of these issues. Yeah, thanks, sir. All right, John. And, and Andy, if I can interrupt, I was reminded yeah. of you just day before yesterday. I was in oh, the no. main office up there and, uh, you know, they got prints all around the, the room. And there was one with a plaque, uh, a bronze plaque that had Andy Edwards and several other students, I think, as conclave winners back in 2002. So, uh, yep. yeah, right. you've, you've been uh, through the department and out and about for quite a while yourself. I have. I so have. what's what's a conclave winner mean? Oh. I'll, let, I'll, I'll let Andy describe that. Well, so I was there 95 to 99 in undergrad and then um, finished up my my thesis uh, on my master's in in 02, in late 02. And uh, yeah, we would go. So all around the southeast, the, the schools that have wildlife programs get together every year for a big competition. Um, there, there are a lot of different things. We'll have field competitions, quiz bowls. We'll have about a bunch of fun, and uh, we always enjoyed being being a pretty good competitor in the old in the old uh, conclave competitions. Uh, Bob, I'm I'm just trying to brag on him a little bit, you know. Winner, <laughs> winner like way it. back in the day. So. That's, that's been. A I while. like it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Quiz bowl, Andy Edwards. Who yeah, knew? Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Yeah, and uh, my name is John Grushy. I'm the uh, private lands program coordinator for the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. I've uh, been in that the coordinator role now for I don't know, like twelve or thirteen years. But um, I was a, a a a Tennessee student there for a spell under under Craig himself there, and also got my I got my undergraduate degree at Mississippi State University. But um, in my capacity, I supervise a series of private lands biologists. Uh, we've got, I guess, eight guys in the field right now, but most state agencies do have some type of private lands program. So if you're a private landowner and you're listening, listening, I would encourage you to reach out. It's usually a free service. We're free uh, in Mississippi. So, um, you know, take advantage of that if you can. Great. Hey, Andy. Cool. Well, I, I wanted to point out I got these gray hairs on uh, for, for a reason. There, John, as he mentioned, was one of those early graduate students. And uh, boy, did we have some times and learn a lot. But over this process, he now is hiring my current graduate students. So wow. all of this has come full circle, and it's full just circle. been a good time. Full circle. We we have quite a bit of that uh, with one of our um, other friends in the in the research world, Dr. Mark McConnell. We see that quite a bit. That Mark is a uh, avid supporter of Quail Forever, but also has. Uh, and I think we, we owe him several bottles of bourbon for his uh, exploits of, of finding people. And I think we're up to five or six now that have <laughs> come through his program and are now Quail Forever employees. So Very um, good. it's a great part of it. So, you, you know, along those lines, I kind of, um, as we start into this, I'd love for you to go, Craig, into some uh, you, I, I got written down here. You can tell the tree by its fruits, and uh, you got a whole lot of really productive um, people out on the land now that that came through as some of your students. I'd love to uh, kind of walk down memory lane for a few minutes on some of those students that are out there in the in the research world. One of which, uh, a good buddy of mine, and and I think a lot of you'll hear listen to the podcast will know is uh, 
is Dr. Ben Jones, also known as the uh, CEO of the Rough Grouse and the American Woodcock, Woodcock Society. So, yeah, that's right. Ben Ben worked on the Grouse Project, did an excellent job, uh, published a lot of good information, and and if if you know of Briar Rabbit, that's Ben. You know, he uh, he left research and went into uh, Pennsylvania to the Game Commission and now with the Rough Grouse and Woodcock Society. And he is doing, I think, exactly what he loves and, as I understand, is doing an excellent job. There's, there's been so many, Andy. I mean, uh, I have been blessed to have a uh, uh, large collection of just great, great people, not just tremendous yeah, students, but great absolutely. people. Uh, you know, Ryan Basinger and Seth Basinger come to mind, Marcus Lashley, Michael McCord. I mean, I can't list them all off, but I'd, I'd, I'd miss somebody. But, you know, Michael now is the small game project coordinator with the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. Right. Uh, Ryan's lead biologist with, with Westervelt. Marcus is uh, a professor down at University of Florida. Jared Brooke, who did uh, quail work here, is extension uh, wildlife specialist at, uh, at, at Purdue. Um, Jared Beaver, he's at uh, Montana State. Ashley Unger's at Texas A&M Kingsville. Uh, they're, they're, they're scattered about here and there. Jordan Annie's doing private lands work over in West Tennessee. And Katie Harris is over in North Carolina saving land and managing land in the lower Piedmont. And Wade Jaffellers is doing all kinds of work with private lands primarily in East Tennessee. But the, the neat thing is every single one of them through the years uh, got a job pretty much immediately, if not before they graduated, mm-hmm. and they all still are in uh, in employment with, with wildlife management today. So that's, right. that's very rewarding to see them be very successful. Well, and, and I always, of course, I can say this, not, not having been one of your students, I always found it very interesting and I thought... Um, productive and helpful for those students that you not only had them on a primary goal for a, for their master's research project, you had them doing secondary stuff as well. You always, they always had uh, lots of things they were working on. Yeah. John, John enjoyed the fruits of that labor a little bit. What we call <laughs> the, the side projects. Yeah. <laughs> the side, yeah. side projects. Sweetening yeah. the pot. Sweetening the pot. <laughs> a lot of fun, you know, All that came about when I was working on my master's degree and my advisor, Eric Bolin, I was working with uh, wood ducks down at Camp Lejeune with the University of North Carolina at Wilmington and was spending, you know, near to all of my days wading around in blackwater swamps at Camp Mm -hmm. Lejeune, collecting all this data. And he said, you know, while you're down there, you you might as well collect some additional stuff. And I thought, additional stuff? My gosh, I am, I am working my tail off and uh he said you know you it doesn't have to be active every day but here's some ideas and he got me involved in side projects and and i did a couple of side projects while i was working on my master's degree and upon finishing uh published both of those and that's just something that i found very valuable get involved in something that's on top of or in addition to your main project it enables you to do some things that and learn some things that you wouldn't otherwise. And so uh, I, I think immediately today of Mark Turner and Bonner Powell and uh, Lindsey Phillips and, and others. I mean, there's been a whole bunch of them that have uh, published data off of their 
uh, off of the side projects that they've been involved with. And that then got them to conferences and meetings that they wouldn't otherwise have been able to attend and meet people, professionals that they wouldn't have otherwise. I, I think it, you know, it, it keeps you busy, but I think it definitely enriches your experience as a graduate student. Yeah, certainly felt like it. Would you have the same opinion there, John? You think that uh, <laughs> being one of those? Yeah. No, it, <laughs> it's definitely something. That I, I'll I'll tell you, it's definitely something you look back on. I actually did. I published uh, one of the side projects too, the disking. Uh, remember the Seven Islands stuff where we did all the uh, disking at different times. So it's it's interesting. You get to get uh, some diverse experience. You know, Bonner published a side project on surveys. Uh, do it doing the human dimensions mm. type stuff. And now he's working for me. I've, I've kind of picked on him to do some of that yeah. uh, yep. for us. So, I mean, like you say, right. sometimes the side projects uh, turn into uh, work later on, not, not just publication. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I would think. Yeah, Bob. Yeah. You know, I'm, 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 I'm curious. Uh, the side project, what do you, Dr. Harper, what do you attribute that to? Like people using a different side of their brain, being more creative, uh, uninhibited to what their primary project is? Why do you attribute success in some of these side projects? Um, Well, a lot of that has to do with us working on demonstration areas. So we have lands and it might be a WMA, it might be a private land, you know, doesn't matter. But we implement these demonstration projects over the years and we keep that going. You know, a, a good example would be the Akron project that we did at Chuck Swan uh, State Forest and Wildlife Management Area. Well, we collected acorns for 10 years. And so there were five or six graduate students involved in that acorn project. That was never a funded project. It was just something hmm. that at that time, way back in the early 2000s, you know, you would hear advertisements that, you know, for example, fertilization leads to more and sweeter acorns. Well, there were no data to support that. Mm. And so people ask me about it as the extension wildlife specialist. So let's, let's implement a project and experiment at some level and collect some data on this and, and see what we can find. And maybe that will lead into something bigger. And, uh, some of those projects have led to publications that are some of the most cited that we, that we have. So, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't have to be a multi-state $750,000 grant project for it to be of interest and use, especially to private landowners, but also to, uh, to uh, public land uh, managers, such as wildlife management areas. And, and, you know, that's what I've tried to do throughout my career. You know, I said a long time ago that when I got my PhD, I kind of educated myself out of every job that I wanted. But when I landed this position at the University of Tennessee, which has been wonderful for me, I thought, you know, I want to train the best managers that I can, you know, my graduate students. And so virtually all of the research that I have done has been work that private land managers or public men land managers could use in, in terms of managing uh, land and, you know, just applied management techniques that they can, that they can use to reach their goals and objectives. Yeah. And, and I feel that too. I feel like you, you know, so often we're able in conversations with, you know, how maybe something is, is out of management prescription or we want to move it towards something. It'll a lot of times be based off research that you've done. And I really feel like we, you know, go to that a lot. A lot of your research ends up being our go-to. 
Well, a, another good example that I think we'll get to one of the points that, that hopefully we'll cover here is uh, we started the prescribed fire demonstration area at Bridgestone Firestone WMA mm-hmm. in 2011. And that was ha- after having visited uh, uh, Push Mataha out in Oklahoma out in the mid 2000s that, that has a fire frequency demonstration area. And I came back and uh, to tell us and thought, you know, why don't we have a fire demonstration area here? And so I got together with Clarence Coffee, and he said, I think I have just the perfect area for us to do this on. And so we set that up on Bridgestone Firestone, where we have one, two, and three-year fire return intervals, both of which also have an early growing season fire treatment and a late growing season fire treatment. So there's right. six treatment areas where we're able to look at the effects of fire. And my graduate students go and collect the vegetation data, the fire effects data, off of those treatment areas, which is like 160 acres total each summer. So that's not their dedicated project, but they also are going out there and collecting those data for a larger effort for a long-term data set that will uh, you know, provide very meaningful information as we go along. Well, and I think, you know, you mentioned Oklahoma and I believe, John, if I'm not mistaken, you're actually headed to Tall Timbers down into the um, South Georgia area and you'll be looking at some of the fire stuff that's going on down there. But the 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 great thing that is going on at Bridgestone Firestone, which is about an hour, let's say, east of Nashville um, and it's kind of considered the Mid-South here in Tennessee, you have the Deep South with Tall Timbers Research, um, the Southern Plains in Oklahoma, and uh, you then filled it, filled in the gap here on the map with with the mid south, so that's great. I I think all those things are regionally important to be showing uh, effect of of fire and return interval. Um, we can certainly have some, you know, learn from those different areas um, and and apply those here locally. But really nice to have a, a local example of of that here in Tennessee. Um. You know, along those lines, we're going to get into some we're going to get into some things that I think would be interesting for our listeners, and and we're going to talk about some things that are controversial, and quite honestly, things that people out on the land sometimes say. Well, you you all recommended a bunch of stuff for us over the years, and we won't go way way back, but um, to the autumn olive years or those sorts of things. But but even more recently, in the last twenty twenty five years. There was a huge push for native grass establishment um, all over, I would say, the east, um, where we, we had lost a lot of our native grass component um, to, to large-scale agriculture. We, we were really promoting, let's say, around the early 2000s, the establishment of native grasses to benefit quail. And, and what we've seen over that uh, last 20 years is that maybe we, we had some things a little different than they should have been, or we, we saw some unintended consequences from that where we got our grasses overly or too thick they were too well established and and we lost some some important components of that so i'd like you to touch on a few of those things and then kind of how we've corrected well i can give you my uh experience i started well as as a undergraduate and a graduate student in the 1980s and early 90s, I had never heard of the term native grasses, okay, mm-hmm. when when I was taking wildlife management courses and land management and whatever, I'd never heard that term. It wasn't until 1994 that I heard the term native grasses, and 
began to read into what is that. And it was primarily coming out of the Midwest as a push to encourage more native plants and discourage non-native plants. And the the primary plants that were being concentrated on were the grasses. And of course, in the Midwest, we're talking about uh, big and little blue stems, switchgrass, Indian grass, and and, a few others, but those were the the main ones, of course. Well, fast forward, this was getting more attention that by the late 1990s, in 1998, when I got this position, That was one of the first things I did in the summer of 1998 is to establish treatment plots for native warm season grasses. And so we began, Tom Barnes is another one in in Kentucky that was doing a lot of work in in this area. And and, uh, Steve Klubine was out in Missouri and, and, you know, a few others out in in that part of the country. But uh, over, over here, Tom Barnes and I were putting in lots of demonstration plots with regard to establishment different herbicides to use, different uh, mixtures of species, different rates, all this kind of thing. And, and we weren't the only ones. There were, there were others uh, throughout the, well, in, especially in portions of, of the Mid-South and going over into to Virginia and the Carolinas. But, uh, the, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was all about, oh, okay, how do we get these grasses established and forbs and also, how do we kill the non-native grass coverage? And principally, that was tall fescue, orchard grass, uh, Bermuda grass, and if you're along the coast, Bahia grass. Yeah. And so that's what we were really working on. It didn't take long. By 1999 or 2000, we could have a solid stand of grass and a component of forbs in there 100%. No, no, yes. no question. We knew which herbicides to use to establish the grasses, which herbicides and rates to get rid of the non-native grasses. Uh, I know Bobby Bond was one of the ones down in Georgia that first reported arsenal for Bermuda grass. So there were lots of people involved with this. Uh But by about 2003 or four, and, you know, we're continuing to monitor all these sites. We're we're finding out, whoa, whoa, you know, these, these, these fields are really thick now with grass. And it didn't take long before we found out we have essentially traded grass for grass, non-native for native, and we don't need to plant nearly as much. Well, Mm -hmm. then we started working on ways to reduce grass density. And that was one of the things that John did a lot of work on, looking at the effect of disking, different herbicides, timing of fire, et cetera, et cetera. How do we reduce the amount of grass and encourage more forbs? Well, along the way, by about 2008, we found out, you know, now that we've gotten rid of some of this grass that we planted, there's broom sedge and purple top and split uh-huh. beard and all these others that are just filling in naturally. And so that led to a series of experiments by Wagerfellers and Bonner Powell and, and other work that we did in some side projects before they came along to investigate, you know, do we really need to plant all this or can we just use the seed bank response and what I call kill what we don't want instead of planting what we do want. And over time, and, and, you know, we've published all this and have some more coming out now uh, on a majority of sites. I'm, I've, I've never said, you know, that there's uh, no case in which you'd want to plant, but to be honest and very clear on a majority of sites in the Eastern U.S., where we are managing for these commonly occurring upland species, whether it be bobwhite, 
uh, eastern cottontail, deer, turkeys, etc. You don't need to plant anything. I mean, right. you're not a bad person if you do. I'm not <laughs> saying that, but you, you don't you don't need to. Right. And so I could I could you know list off a number of commonly occurring native forbs, such as pokeweed, partridge pea, ragweed, pigweed, cockleburr, all, all kinds of commonly occurring native forbs that occur across these sites that provide either food and or cover for these species that we're talking about. Right. And an exception, and I've mentioned this with, with several crowds and audiences, you know, if you're explicitly trying to manage for grassland obligate songbirds, yes, there's certainly cases in which you're going to get to where you want to be faster if, if you plant. But Bob White is not one of those. And, right. and I will and, go on the record once again in saying this, Bob White literally do not need grass. Do they benefit from some grass? Of course they do. But they will they will nest in forb cover as they would in grass cover and just as successfully as, as we have found out. And in these densely planted native grasses, they literally are avoiding them, we know, through through telemetry studies. Right. So it, it's not that we've done bad in trying to promote native grasses. We were trying to promote native plant communities over non-native plant communities. But along along the way, you figure out things. And so we have adjusted our message and, and approach. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things I want to get out of this podcast today is that having having folks understand that just because you have a native grass planting and you, you know, you doesn't mean you're going to have quail. And, and quite often those things that were established 10, 15, even 20 years ago, you most likely aren't going to have quail and, and doing things that are a little different than normal. And even some of those, some of those uh, plants that you mentioned cause some people to bristle, particularly cockleberry, pigweed, those sorts of things. Yes, absolutely. We understand that. We don't, we're not trying to have the noxious weed boards called on us here, but those things can be highly beneficial that are called weeds. They can be highly beneficial for quail and even more so a lot of times than the grasses. But, uh, and, and, we, and since you brought that up, let, let me, let me mention this. I think this is an important point. We are not, as, as you just mentioned, we're not trying to promote an excessive amount of pigweed or cockleburr. Right. I mean, my gosh, I'm just trying to make the point that the structure of these plants and the seed, for example, of pigweeds are eaten by many, many bird species. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't want a field covered in blackberry or goldenrod either, but I like a little of a whole lot of things mm. because that diversity of plant species across an area is extremely important because that means the flowering period is going to differ across the spring, summer, and fall. The seed that is produced is going to differ. You're going to have different forage uh, amounts from different plants that, that deer or groundhogs or rabbits, et cetera, would eat. So I don't want a solid field of anything. Right. I want a good mixture of all kinds of things, and principally, forbs. Uh, having a, a grass place. component is good, but for most of these species that we're trying to manage for, as I've said lots of times, uh, unless it's a, a metal arc, a henslows, or a grasshopper sparrow, something like that, I don't want more than about 30% grass coverage. Yeah, yeah. It, John, I think um, one of the things you brought up, uh, having an interest in mentioning and 
is is that importance of understanding the plant community and a lot of that includes identification you yeah. might you might touch on that and kind of how important that is and maybe some of your research that you did back in the day sure yeah yeah well and of course the you know like craig mentioned the uh, being able to thin the native grasses was a big part of uh, the research that i did and you know there was a lot of steps in between obviously this is a a, pro, a, a podcast where you're trying to go quick on different things but <laughs> That was a process of years where we, we learned a lot of this stuff. And I, one of the iterations we had, you know, we tried to back off on the seeding rates. And, and I, one of my hard lessons was I was putting a lot of partridge pea and seed mixes. So, I, you know, I can go back to stuff that I was planting in 2007 and eight, and uh, people were cussing me yeah. over the partridge pea. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's difficult to learn on other people's land, I guess. But, uh, but the, uh, the, the other one I, I think about, too, is herbicides. You know, we talked a little, lot about them. I've, I've come to, and, and this goes back to the plant ID and kind of the ecology, the soils and all these things. Um, there are certain sites that react differently to high levels of soil active herbicides. And so, you know, in some places we're using herbicides. It, it's really hard because people want you to give them a, a oh, cookbook yeah. recommendation. And the problem is there's no such thing as a cookbook recommendation on any of this. And we've known that for a long time with forestry. You know, if you talk to any forester going way back, they'll tell you, oh, the tree's got to match the site. You know, we need long leaf on a long leaf site, cherry bark on a cherry bark site. But when you move to early succession, that, that amount of information has not always been there. And so one of the first steps is being able to identify plants. And if you're a private landowner, uh, just getting a basic knowledge of plant identification is really the first step. And that's mm -hmm. not hard now. They got these fancy phone apps. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a plant guy. I identify by sight a lot of plants, but I feel like John Henry and the steam engine, you know, all these people in the <laughs> field, they want to get their phone out of me. Ah, I got to, I beat you. I'm going to beat the phone. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and like, what are you going to do when you don't have service? You know, anyway, but the, uh, the, <laughs> So, so I think just learning learning the plants is, is a good first step. And then when you take the next step, you start really looking at the soils on your property. You say, look, these heavy clays in the bottom react completely differently to the same management when I do it on mm. these dry mm -hmm. ridges or these sandy areas. And people figure that out with food plots. You know, we, we spent a long time, uh, I think maybe other wildlife biologists, not so much Craig, uh, kind of down in food plots. We, oh, we don't need to do... Uh, you know, supplemental plantings, and they're certainly mm -hmm. not necessary. But if you think about it, the landowners learn a lot by doing their food plots. You know your strong fields and your wheat fields. Um, you know where certain plants like wheat and, and oats are going to do better than your clovers in some fields. The same thing applies with early succession. I think as you go uh, down that road, you'll see that there are certain areas of the property, certain soil types, uh, slope uh, plays into that in some cases. Uh, precipitation regime and in fact you know I was thinking about this the other day I watched some movie and you guys were just talking about whiskey but you know people talk about wine and they oh this the 2004 was so much better than the whatever you know why is all that well it has to do with the rain that year and hmm. the you know we have cycles in precipitation that we've had since you know forever you know since the glaciers receded and so you know you can burn on one year when it's a dry year and get a completely different response regardless of the season you're doing it than you would in a yeah. wet year. Um, we know this with moist soil. You know, we do, if you go to the waterfowl side, we're doing moist mm -hmm. soil management. 
you know, if you have a wet year, it can, you know, go ahead and get your cookbook out when you're going to pull what boards <laughs> and it ain't going to work. So you, you've got to be, uh, you've got to be adaptive and you've got to kind of start picking up some of this. It, it can be uh, intimidating to folks who don't have that experience, but I think that good first step again is, is learning the yeah. plants. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and I'll take a second here to say that I am one of those guys that goes out in the field and gets my phone out because I, I have some limited knowledge of botany. I'm pretty good at trees, but when we get to plants, I, I, I struggle at times, but any landowner that's out there, if you're interested in learning plants, it is not hard anymore. If you've got a smartphone, download Seek. It's a free app. You can, if you can work your phone camera, you can work Seek and hold it over that thing. It's not a hundred percent, but it'll, it'll, for the most common species, it'll get you really close and it'll help you learn, you know, what's out there and, and kind of what your, what, what, should be there you can kind of make some inferences from some of that and uh pretty neat pretty neat uh, app i enjoy it i also love having uh, folks like our state coordinator Brittany Viers out there who's an amazing botanist and uh sometimes she has to do a little correction for me for oh wait a minute that one's not exactly what you think it is so um but yeah i think our, our land managers out there understanding that plant community is super important it can be a uh you know, like a, a daunting task, but it mm -hmm. shouldn't. Uh, right. to most people, I think that's the way they view it. But in, you know, the field days and workshops and what we, what all we do, seminars, et cetera. And especially when we're out in the field, the, the thing that we commonly point out is just learn the 10 most common plants in your field. If you mm -hmm. have an old field, some mm -hmm. early successional area, go out there and pick the 10 most common ones. Surely you can learn 10 plants. Mm -hmm. It's not difficult. And when you do, all of a sudden you read up a little bit about those 10 plants and you know, okay, this one is providing this for Bob White or for some other species or this one I really don't want. This is not good at all. And so you, all of a sudden you begin to, you begin to get what I would call a working knowledge of the primary plants on, on your property. You don't have to be a botanist, but at least have some working knowledge of the plants that are uh, occurring most often on your property. That's true in the woods also. You know, learn 10 species of trees if you don't know them and be quite familiar with those. On most woodlots that you go into or in most fields that you go into on these private land sites or, or a public WMA, there's usually not many more than 10 species of plants that are occurring pretty frequently in, in the fields or more mm -hmm. than 10 tree species in the woods. Now, of course, there are exceptions. Some of sure. them are, are, are very rich with regard to uh, the number of species. But many, many cases, there's not that many. And, and learning the dominant ones is, is not difficult. And then when you start implementing the management, whether it be fire or selective herbicide, spot spraying, discing or what have you, you're going to see additional plants pop up. Mm. learn those and then all of a sudden you're well on your way to understanding how your management affects the plant community and then that directly affects the quality of habitat for the different species you're managing for yeah i'd like to bridge over maybe to kind of we talked about fields quite a little bit and and diversity of species that might occur in there and one of the i hesitate maybe a little grandiose to say one of the frontiers that we're managing now is is actually looking at, particularly in hardwood uh, settings, we're looking at areas that are um, 
closed canopy forest and converting those more into quail habitat. And, and a term that gets uh, used a lot is a woodland. Um, and, and quite often, most people wouldn't understand, well, a, a woodland is an area with trees. You know, how's that any different from a closed canopy forest? But if you could, uh, Craig, for a second, talk about the woodland and, and importance for quail. Well, when you read the ecology literature, you find that you go from what's typically called a forest, and that most often, obviously without disturbance, is going to be relatively closed canopy. That is, there's typically, on average, only 3 to 5% sunlight entering the canopy, reaching the forest floor. Mm-hmm. When you open that up, and you have 30, 30 to 80% tree coverage, now that's a wide range. 30 to 80%, if that also has an understory that is dominated by herbaceous species, then that is termed a woodland. When you go less than 30% tree coverage down to five with a herbaceous uh, plant community, you know, on, on the ground, dominated by herbaceous plants, that is termed a savanna. And less than 5% trees typically is termed a prairie. So you go from prairie to savanna with up to 30% coverage of trees to a woodland, 30 to 80% with a herbaceous understory, 80 to 100 a forest. But what if you don't have that herbaceous uh, understory underneath the woodland or savanna? Well, at that point, you simply have a thinned forest with regenerating stems, woody stems coming up. And so you have just changed the age of the forest but you didn't change the quote ecotype, okay? You went from forest to woodland to savanna by way of reducing the amount of trees in the overstory and manipulating the understory such that it is dominated by herbaceous plants as opposed to uh, tree sprouts or, or ferns or other shade tolerant plants. And that that's another important concept. Let's say, for example, we're in the mountains of Tennessee or at uh, four to 5,000 feet elevation on the Tennessee, North Carolina uh, border or some areas on the, on the plateau, especially on, on the east side. And you can get into some of these cove hardwoods that have massive trees, virtually no sunlight coming in, hardly at all, but it's totally green underneath and lush. Hmm. Well, in those situations, you're looking at shade tolerant, what should be considered late successional species. Mm. So you can have late successional herbaceous species. They only occur in these late successional stages. And and so just because you see green in the woods on the ground, that doesn't mean it's an early successional plant. Now, when you thin the woods down, and I use the term wood, you know, our colloquial word woods as opposed to forest, we go into the forest or our woods and we thin the trees. And let's just say we take out 30% of the trees and then we interject fire. And over time, with continued burning, we get a decent complement of of, uh, herbaceous plants, many of which will be early successional. Mm -hmm. If you open that canopy up more, early successional species being those that require sunlight, you will get more early successional plants. If you open the canopy even more, let's say to 80% sunlight, you're going to get even more, Mm -hmm. providing that you're continuing the, the disturbance with fire. And so we use the uh, amount of canopy coverage. We, we, we vary that by what our objective is. And then we use fire 
and we use fire on a different fire return interval and at different seasons of the year to influence the structure of the vegetation as well as the height of vegetation in the woods. And so there's all kinds of options there from burning every year, every two years, three years, etc., burning in the dormant season or early growing season, late growing season, etc. Now you start putting all these combinations together to get precisely what you want out of the understory with regard to the the composition of the plants present and the structure. Uh, and and I think all those things and we're we're not going to have time to delve into all that but like huge um things there that you just covered about seasonality of burns and diversifying that across, you know, your your years of management for your property. Um, we are in a rut, it seems, in a lot of areas about a spring, early, you know, late winter, early spring, you know, let's say February to early April, we're, we're burning the woods. We're doing it the same every year, every other year. We're burning those same spots. But you, you touch a lot on, and I think quite a bit of John's research even was about timing of fire, late grow, we would call late growing season here in the Mid-South from right now all the way through sometimes, you know, quite a bit of October, we'll have leaves on the trees, but sure. particularly into early October. And and burning at that time of year gets a completely different response than burning in the spring. And um, making sure that you integrate that diversity of timing and s- scale and um, and you know, your areas that you're burning or you're man, you're disking, you're burning, you're disturbing. Um, well, that land is huge. I'll, I'll, in, in my opinion, okay, I'll, I'll say that in my opinion, a lot of our burning practices are cultural. It's mm-hmm. what we have done over many decades and oftentimes even generations of, of managers. For sure. And so what happens in the South on February 28th? This, that's the end of quail season. There, there you go. Is. See, uh, that, see, that's why he was on the quiz bowl team, Bob. <laughs> quail, quail season ends on February 28th. So what do you have to do between March the 1st and March 15th, or, or at least as mm-hmm. of a couple, three years ago, before they adjusted some things here, before I give it away, what happens between, uh, what happens around March 15th to March 20th? Uh, March Madness turkey turkey season (laughs) so what do you have to do between March the 1st and March 15th Mm. or 20th you got to get your burning Mm. done and and so that is what has happened culturally and Mm -hmm. when you chronically burn at that period and most of these sites you know on the quote quail plantations and and it's this is it's dripping with irony (laughs) <laughs> they burn either every year, every other year on, on many of these sites and burning at that time on that regime leads to essentially a sea of grass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then, well, I, I wonder what has happened. Why aren't we seeing as many birds? Well, what food value is there there? Very little. And so if oh, and this didn't happen overnight, this has happened over decades and so we can't change it overnight. That's, well, you actually can with a disc. But if you change your disturbance practices such that you are disturbing the plant community at different times of the year and you're stimulating more forbs as opposed to just a sea of grass and, and a, a, a sward of sweet gum sprouts, which happens mm. every time you burn in, in March and April. 
Yep. Hmm. You will begin to see a different composition of plants, uh, a, a greater amount of food, etc. And so then the, the, the topic comes up, well, how large of an area should I burn? Many of these places are burning, you know, commonly uh, 40 to 120 acres. And, you know, a little anecdote that, that I've shared with folks, when we started the quail project on the three management areas in Tennessee, um, one of the areas, they typically use relatively large fires. And we had trapped a bunch of birds and, and we had radios on them. We we'd trapped several birds. We didn't have a whole bunch of them at that time, probably uh, 30, 30 or so on air. And we'd had them on air for about uh, three months. And we'd been following them over that over that time period. And this one covey was using an area that was, I don't know, a, about uh, 10 to 15 acres primarily. That, that was the core mm-hmm. spot where they were using. Well, the manager, who is not, not there now, they burned an area that was about 120 acres that incorporated that 10 to 15 acres that that covey had been using for about three months. That mm-hmm. covey then, of course, was displaced. Every bird in the covey was dead went by one week later. Mm. They went had mm. to, they were forced into an area that they were not used to. You know, we're obviously theorizing here. And so that led to increased uh, mortality. That is not an isolated event. There are other studies that have pointed to the same thing with regard to a reduced scale of management leads mm. to reduced movements and increased survival and increased productivity. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a difficult thing for many managers to grasp that we should be managing burning units on a 5 to 20 acre scale, for example, rather right. than a 40 to 80 acre scale. You know, if, if we're hoping that we can improve habitat quality such that uh, a Bob White's home range, annual home range is, is, let's say, 60 to 80 acres, in which, of course, it could be smaller than that, then why would you ever disrupt the entire home range at one time. Right. And and so that's something that I get a lot of flashback on. Craig, you just don't understand, you know, you don't manage these big areas and, and we got five thousand acres to manage, Bill. You know, maybe you don't understand. When you actually try that and you have the fire breaks in place and, and you burn three 10 acre blocks instead of one 30 acre block and, and these 10 acre blocks don't have to be, you know, 10 miles apart. Uh, you know, you, you need to have this plant community coming in and out following disturbance uh, w- within any given uh, home range of, of the birds. And so in general, what we and, and of course, many others on, on properties that are intensely managed for quail, if you're not managing, if you're not disturbing 30 to 40 percent of that property every year, you're either stagnant or going backwards with regard to the quail population. Yeah. And I think this touches on some of the uh, conversation we, we y'all were having before we hit record was, you know, if, if we are actively managing our public lands for, you know, the greatest benefit, it would include that system where you're, you're, you're out there turning the dirt literally or, or with fire, you're somehow disturbing it and creating a higher, um, you know, higher number of available species, whether it be deer, turkey, quail, doves, whatever it may be out there on the land for, for people to take advantage of. Yeah, John was given an example of a WMA that was uh, opening up this afternoon and there were people camped out since four o'clock in the morning to get out there and shoot some doves. And, you know, that's a perfect example of where the interest is there. 
And, yes. and if, if the hunting opportunity is good, if they're going to hear gobblers, if they're going to flush quail, if they're going to see deer, you don't have to have a, a video game for the kids to keep them interested. You, you see yeah. what I'm saying? And it's yeah. the same thing for adults who haven't hunted or haven't hunted much. When they get into areas where the hunting is good, they're hooked. I mean, yes. that, as I said, there's there's nothing to me more intoxicating than being in the presence of, of, of wild animals that you're chasing out there. I mean, that, that's, that's as good as it gets. Right. Yeah. That's right I, there with God and mama and apple pie. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's good stuff. Oh man. You know, and I think, uh, we, we've talked several times about this, but post COVID you got a, a greater appetite for people wanting to get out and experience the outdoors. And, and they are more, I feel like they're informed about what, what wildlife habitat is at times. And they, they're hopefully they're learning from, Things like this podcast are learning from publications that they're reading and they are asking for that on public lands more and more often. Uh, and I, I'm, I, that's a great thing, you know, we're, and I think our agencies are, are responding well to that and seeing that need and, um, and, and hoping to fill it. Um, I think we're going, we're going to switch it up a little bit and I totally have this written. I'm going to just read what I got written on the sheet, the lightning round on topics to push Craig's buttons. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Get the popcorn, folks. Yeah, well, he and I have had a long history of uh, back and forth banter at times. And, and, and I always, I feel like I feel a good public service when I'm at, you know, a, um, maybe a field day or something. I'm the guy that'll ask the stupid question. And so some of it, um, and, and it's not always intentional. Uh, and, but some of these, I, I really think, uh, you've provided great answers. Uh, one time I remember we were in a, uh, looking at a property. It was a nice looking property, but they had a, a, a road cut right around the edge of their field between a mature forest and their, their nice, uh, habitat. And I, and I asked what about that road and how it affected quail since quail were an edge species. And, uh, I'd love to hear what you have about to say about quail being an edge species. Well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not going to let my buttons be mashed too hard. I know you're <laughs> intentionally trying to do this, but I, I, I just try to get people to think about it. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, if you're a bird hunter or if you're a rabbit hunter, for example, and you put the dogs out, why do you guide them around the edge of the field? And and I have asked audiences, I remember I asked this repeatedly at, at seminars in the early 2000s, you know, why are you letting the dogs out around the edge of the field? And eventually, almost forcing the audience to answer, they would say, because that's where the birds or that's where the rabbits are. And I would respond, okay, why? And then they would just kind of look at me. And I would ask again, why? Why do you think the birds or the rabbits are just around the edge of the field? Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know. That's, that's just that's where, where they are. It's, it's, it's where the, and finally, they will say, that's where they have some cover. Yes, that's exactly right. Why do they have cover around the edge of the field? And it would be either because the interior of the field had or was being mowed or was being cropped. Mm -hmm. And so it goes back to a concept that Fred Guthrie brought out, having usable space. Mm -hmm. And so the interior of the field or the interior of the woods does not represent usable space 
for those species. And so it's not that they are selecting the edge, they are relegated to the Mm -hmm. edge. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what Aldo Leopold described in his book, Game Management, in 1933. You know, he was the first one to describe this this principle of edge. But you have to keep in mind that he was working in an agricultural landscape in the the upper Midwest. And and yes, at that time, that's where those species, the pheasants, the rabbits, the bobwhite, et cetera, were found because the cover and or the food resources were not available in the interior. And so if you were on working lands where those fields have to be hayed or cropped, then you definitely need to concentrate on managing the edge. And we do that through uh, various you know, government programs through NRCS, FSA, state wildlife agencies, et cetera, where we create broader, wider field edges, what we call them field borders, et cetera. We manage them in different ways to provide usable space for those species that need that type of cover. But if that is not a, quote, working land, and that land is being managed altogether for wildlife, Mm -hmm. the field Mm -hmm. as well as the woods, then no, there shouldn't be any such thing as an edge species. You ought to be managing the field such that you would flush as many birds or jump as many rabbits out of the interior of the field as you would the edge of the field. And and the same thing has been mentioned even for generalists such as as deer and turkeys. And so the, the structure of the vegetation strongly influences where these animals are found, their sense of cover, and then, of course, also the food resources that are available and, and their proximity. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the points you brought about was if you go to Kansas or Oklahoma or Texas where you're hunting what could essentially look like a thousand acre field, quote, field, but you see that those changes, those little nuanced changes in, in cover, maybe it's a a plum thicket or it's a, you know, a draw that has a different you know habitat component to it. That's where you're going to find the birds, but it's out in the middle of a quote field because it's offering a lot of different diversity for the, for the species. So well, I, those, I, those woody species provide uh, critical cover for, for bobwhite, mm-hmm. which has led uh, many to call the species a shrubland obligate. Right. Mm-hmm. Rather than go ahead, Bob. Well, yeah, because I'm thinking about it, um, you know, when you're chasing sharptails mm-hmm. in Kansas mm-hmm. or, you know, or, or greater prairie chickens in Fort Pierre grasslands. And, you know, I think about the sea of grass and it's harder to determine where the birds are going to be located. But it, it used a key word for me, um, Craig, with structure, because I, I can connect bob whites with structure. You know, I can see a sea of grass and find shrubs. Or, uh, you know, a little patch of woods or something that creates structure like a bass fisherman mm. <laughs> thinks about. And like, that's where the bobwhites are going to be, which is a little bit harder when you think about prairie grouse for me to f- identify where the, wh- where the birds are going to be. Because they, they don't seem to be related to structure as strongly as bobwhites do. We, we see the same thing here where you have relatively large fields that are dominated by grass, whether, you know, it's, it's a, a hay field or a pasture or just a field that has been planted to native grass, uh, thinking that that was, that was good. And you, you, you routinely find the birds within just, uh, you know, 
a few to several yards of the woody structure, whether that be a little drainage area jutting out in the field or around the edge of the uh, field, et cetera. So, you know, it, for example, from our work in, in Kentucky on the Bob White Project and now uh, on the WMAs here in Tennessee with the Bob White Project, uh, easily greater than 95% of the locations are going to be within about uh, 20 to 30 yards of, of some type of, of woody cover, not, you know, way hmm. out in the middle of some grass. That's big. That's big. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking back to a podcast we did last year about um, kind of digitally using on X to scout for quail. And you can see those, you can, if you're looking at a big area and you zoom in, you can see that kind of stuff on on X. And, and, and so that gets right into, in my opinion, the management Instead yeah. of having like a block of nesting cover and a block of brooding cover and a block of escape cover. No, no, no. All of that should be mixed together such that mm. the birds could nest, forage, find escape from, from nearby patches mm-hmm. or strips of woody stuff. Mm-hmm. And so your management can allow occurrence of woody vegetation over this, over this broader area. It, it doesn't have to be a large block of this, that, or the other. All of that can be meshed together and thus increase uh, the, the number of birds that the area will support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things you touched on some earlier, you, you, you talked about it in relation to savanna or woodland, but um, a, a grassland itself, I think you've challenged uh, some managers lately about you know, just to think differently about what you think of as a, as a grassland. Love you to hear, hear about that. Well, uh, again, I, I work with private landowners a lot and, you know, let's be honest. When you tell somebody that the Northern bobwhite is a grassland bird, what, what, what does that tell them? Immediately that tells them, Oh, I need a grassland. Grass. All right. When when, you know, you're a quote, quote, regular person, you know, not an ecologist. When they hear, oh, I need a grassland. What do they envision? If they close their eyes and think about a grassland, what do they envision? They envision a large field that is dominated by grass. grass. And so I'm not saying anybody is wrong or right. I'm just saying that when you're working, trying to get private landowners to better manage for quail, Telling them that quail is a grassland bird and they need grasslands can be very misleading because they think they need a lot of grass. And so if you reduce that amount of grass, as as we have discussed and described, the habitat quality is going to be better and you're going to have more usable space for the birds over a broader area. Mm -hmm. And so I try to talk to landowners and describe an area of early successional plants dominated by, by forbs. It has a decent grass component, you know, as I've mentioned, maybe up to 30% or so and have a, a good mixture of, of forbs and incoming shrubs. Some, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's tree uh, sprouts such as, you know, hickory or oak sprouting up and then it's top killed by the fire, etc. Those are in very important structural uh, sources of cover, particularly for broods. Broods will go and, and huddle around these little uh, clumps of, of woody patches. And then hopefully you have, you know, 
more of a bare ground structure underneath a plant canopy as opposed to uh, a structure that is essentially shut down and closed and tight with a lot of thatch, which is what you typically get with a lot of grass. And so, you know, when, you know, there are many ecologists. Now think of this, Andy. There are many ecologists who call woodlands grasslands. Now, if if that is the case, then by default, a redheaded woodpecker is a grassland obligate species. <laughs> it, it, it's just right. it's called it, it causes confusion. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're wrong in causing calling that a grassland, and they're you know kind of lumping all of these uh, herbaceous plants together as quote mm-hmm. grass. But to me, that's not accurate. Yeah, and and but- we could be more accurate with our terms, which I think will lead to less confusion. I agree. I agree. I think um, it, it's something that and you all, you know, managers understand it, but having the general public understand that that is not necessarily the case and and how they need to think about it and kind of rewire thinking about, you know, the woody component, the shrub component, the the herbaceous component that is not grass, but is broadleaf, forbs, um, weeds, even, if you will. Um, and I thought that was one interesting thing. If you had a chance, if, if you're around Tennessee and have a chance to go look at Bridgestone Firestone, Nathan Wilhite, the new manager there, is doing great things that, uh, to establish really nice early successional plant communities. A lot of the research that y'all are doing out there is, is helping with that. But you look out there and it's a sea of ragweed right now. Um, um, Nathan has done a tremendous job in, in transforming that area into much higher quality quail habitat than it was. Mm -hmm. Um, When we started trapping birds out there in the fall of 2020, we estimated about eight cubbies. Mm -hmm. And then we started implementing the quail management plan going forward through uh, spring of 21. By the fall of 21, we estimated 11 cubbies with 10 birds per covey. By the fall of 22, we estimated 15 coveys with an estimated 13 birds uh, per covey. And we are excited to see what the, the estimates show this year, because just by being out there, we certainly feel that that there's even more birds. And, right. and we're ultimately hoping to, to double that. And I think Nathan is, is well on his way of doing that. He, is, he has really gotten after it. Uh, yeah. He had to clear relatively large areas because there was so much uh, tall fescue and dense planted grass out there. He's mm-hmm. done a great job. He and, and, and the other managers uh, at Bridgestone and, and yeah, if, if you get a chance, you definitely would want to see that. And, and, and he's maintaining that. This is very interesting on just over 700 acres, right? Uh, only 700 acres of open ground, essentially surrounded by closed canopy forest. And it's very interesting to look at the telemetry locations. Uh, you, you come up to the road on the north side of what's called the farm unit and across the road, there's open ground, but it's primarily uh, uh, pasture and, and, mm-hmm. and hayland or, or just openings that are routinely mowed. The locations, you know, the telemetry locations of the bird, they stop like a wall right there at the road. Mm-hmm. I mean, there might be one or two that cross the road, yep. but quickly they say, oh, we don't want to go over here. So yep. he, he's doing a great job of maintaining really good quail habitat there. Right. It's a it's a huge WMA, but the available amount of habitat for quail is, is limited, like you said, to that, that farm unit, which is 700 acres or so. And I mean, those are impressive numbers for that that size of land that you're able to manage. Um, I think we're going to 
we're going to put a bow on this a little bit. Um, and, and, but I do, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I really enjoy doing these quick hitters, but I, I, I think, <laughs> I do think we could touch on one more thing because it's the time of year where people are, um, they're wanting to do something. And quite often, uh, this time of year, it's getting a little ragged out there and your property, it looks a little rough. Neighbors are complaining. Um, I'm pretty sure I know where you're going already. <laughs> everybody wants to get out their number one management tool to set back succession. And what we would call that in Tennessee is the bush hog. So um, they want to get that out and uh, and set back those woody plants and uh, have everything looking nice for the for the winter and get their deer paths mowed and get it all ready to go. So what is that doing for wildlife species and and in the on their property well i'll let john chime in here as well but you know if you're mowing your deer path that's you know to get to stand sites and what i mean that's that's fine you know mowing your your property roads keeping your your trails mowed down etc um what it would be better if you did not do don't use mowing as your primary way of setting back succession because you are ultimately leading to more and more grass mowing unless you're mowing multiple times a year that does not kill trees mm -hmm. it just makes the sprout short and then they're going to grow right back up right um so if you have to mow and you can't burn if you can't use uh selective herbicides disking etc then at least wait and do your mowing in late winter just prior to spring green up that way you've allowed that cover to stand for uh not only bobwhite but rabbits and and overwintering sparrows and, and many other species that need that cover in those fields such as that through the winter time you know that that mm -hmm. winter cover mm -hmm. is very very important for for many species not just uh bobwhite and then you'd be setting that cover back in late winter right before spring green up try to do it in a in a patchy scale not all at once just like if you're burning or disking don't burn or disk everything try to scale down your management let some regrowth occur before you set back another area and and you know it, it it's not necessarily uh how do i put this uh it, it's not best case scenario to set back succession during the nesting and brood rearing period mm -hmm. but unless you're doing that on a pretty big scale you're not hurting the population the important thing to keep in mind is every day of the year is a possible day to do something good for for bob white and mm -hmm. other species mm -hmm. don't be relegated to any certain time of year and and keeping that plant community community coming in and out and on a relatively small scale and well distributed across the property is going to help things more than any other. So mm -hmm. even if you're mowing, whether you're disking or burning, try to scale it down. Don't do it all at, at one time. And, you know, if, if you haven't used fire before, get somebody who who has and who has experience and and experiment using fire on a small scale. And, yep. and the last thing that I'll say related to that is burning at this time can be extremely important with regard to encouraging more forbs, reducing that woody component a little bit. And it's also, in general, the time of year in which your fire intensity is going to be relatively low. You know, when you mm -hmm. burn in 
February, March, early April at, at our latitude, and there's full sunlight coming in, there's few to no green leaves, that's when we have on average our highest intensity fires. And so that, that green in the leaves represented by chlorophyll is about 85% water. And, you know, 80 to 90% water, depending on the, uh, you know, how much rain we've had lately, et cetera. And so it takes a lot of energy of the fire mm. to get that consumed, boil that off, dissipate that before the plant material is consumed. And so your fire intensity is relatively speaking, much less, much less apt to get out into areas that right. you you know don't want uh, to burn. So this is a good time to, uh, to begin using fire if you haven't used it on, on a small scale and, and of course have people there with you who, who are experienced and, and, you know, get a little experience under your belt mm-hmm. and you'll see how, wow, you know, I, I can do this too. You can. Yep. And we're working a whole lot more um, across a lot of our states now with prescribed burn associations. So if you aren't, if you're nervous about fire, you want to learn more about it, look up, you know, your local state and see if there's a prescribed burn association. Quite often our chapters or our, our staff are associated with those as well, but definitely look those up. So Andy, before you take us to the um, closing thoughts, let me give a shout out to um, Onyx, our uh, national sponsor and, and, and partner of On The Wing podcast. And uh, you mentioned them earlier. You could check out yep. uh, Quail Habitat there. You can find your next hunting spots. Uh, it's a tremendous tool for not only the uh, public land hunter, but uh, the wildlife manager too. Um, you can use the code PFQF at onyxhunt.com and you'll get 20% off your membership at Onyx and they will make a donation to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's wildlife habitat mission. Reminder, the code is PFQF for 20% off. What are our best ways to make a difference for quail? I think we've touched on a whole lot of things today. I, you know, Things that come to mind for me are, you know, diversifying both scale and timing and uh, thinking thinking a little differently than our traditional ways have uh, been out there. And um, I have this conversation most often, I'll even for the few times a year I go out and visit with landowners, um, it's pretty easy to see why they don't have quail. Uh, it's because they typically have been doing things at the same time of year from in the same spot for many, many years. Um, and I am absolutely no field biologist anymore. I sit in, I sit on teams. So don't, don't take that as a, uh, as an indication <laughs> that I know much, but even for me, I can see it clearly. Um, you know, and I'm sure you all can too in, in your day-to-day, uh, interactions. And so John, if you will, uh, start us out by, uh, by closing us out. But as a landowner, you really only have, uh, the ability to impact your property but I, I think it's time for us to start thinking about talking across the fence a little more um, and seeing how we can involve our neighbors in some of this management. Obviously, that's not always going to work. Um, and it may not be your immediate neighbors, but just thinking about that landscape, you know, obviously we've got private lands biologists, um, you know, like, like the, the folks here in Mississippi uh, that can come out as a free service. I think trying to build that critical mass, if you will, on the landscape is going to be made a lot easier if we've got landowners helping each other out, talking to one another, because a lot of times, you know, they'll, uh, they're going to listen to another landowner right. maybe better than they will about a, a, a certified biologist in, in some cases. Um, so I, I think all those practices we've talked about, 
uh, today extensively. And, and then also, you know, kind of being deliberate with some of our management. We talked a lot about grassland and all these kinds of things. But when you look at some of these landscapes, I work a lot in a prairie landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, we know from research, and I mean, it doesn't take uh, too much of that to tell you, our limiting factor is overwinter mortality. I mean, we can't keep quail uh, through the through the winter. We can't get them through. You know, survival is just terrible. And so, you know, I, you were talking about mowing and, and the shrubland versus the grassland and all. Uh, I mean, you know, anything we can do to have shrub cover mm. is critical mm -hmm. in this landscape. And so, you know, if we go in and start trying to, you know, really focus on establishing grasslands and those kinds of things, I mean, you can shoot yourself in the foot. So, uh, you know, just being deliberate with that management and then also trying to talk across the fence, I think, are probably my uh, two biggest takeaways. That being said, because you guys pretty much hit all the, the sweet stuff, I, I realize Craig is like the the Pat Sajak to my Vanna White, you know, I'm just, I can't, I can't, he's the talent and I'm the, I can't. I've always thought uh, that. So why, why are you not showing video, Andy? Exactly. Y'all can't I wanted to show John off. have his video on. <laughs> so, so I want to, I want to just ask John a question, you know, John, you're in Mississippi, correct? And you said that, um, Overwinter mortality of bobwhite is the number one cause of uh, of mortality of the bobwhite quail. To a person sitting in Minnesota thinking winter is coming, you know that's shocking to me. What what is it? Just a cold snap that kills bobwhite quail no. in Mississippi? What's the what's the cause of the mortality? No, no, it's, a, it's a cover. It's a cover limitation. So we're. We're in a situation, we're at the low end of, if, if you're familiar with the, the woodcock or the uh, waterfowl migration, you know, what stops them when they get to Louisiana, right? The ocean. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're kind of at the southern end of the hawk migration and not to, you know, just trash um, avian predators or anything like that. I don't want people to get the wrong, uh, you know, wrong opinion or anything. But uh, basically, we you can watch the Christmas bird counts at this these low, mid-south, deep south. When we get that uh, hawk migration there in about February, uh, January, February, when he hits high swing, that's when our cover's at its worst, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the winter cover. And so uh, I've actually been involved in a telemetry. I'm on the WMA that I'm at where we've got this big dove uh, deal. Back in 2000, I was actually a technician on a project here, and I took 94 birds uh, from telemetry out of, out of one summer and uh, and took them through the winter. You know, I just followed them through the winter to give them to the next graduate student for the nesting season. We had 12. Wow. Went from 94 mm -hmm. to 12 in the course of one winter. And it's a, a lot of avian mortality. They don't, you know, rarely is a quail going to starve to death. They'll eat anything short of a roof intact. You know, anything they can swallow, <laughs> uh, they're going to eat. Uh, they're, they're probably, you know, going to get smoked by something. That's just yeah. how they are. Have you eaten one? Sure. They're delicious. You know, so mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of one of those, uh, one of those things we just got to be aware of. And so, you know, managing for winter cover. And, you know, if you look at that in the data, you'll see in the research, so they, oh, we, the number one uh, population dynamic uh, or what is affecting Lambda was, uh, you know, the number of hens entering the breeze. Mm -hmm. Well, that means overwinter mortality, mm -hmm. right? I mean, how do you get, how do you get hens entering the breeze? So anyway, it's a, well, it's a well it relates to what Dr. Harper said earlier when Andy prompted with leave the brush hog in the, in the garage come fall, yeah. right? Because yeah. that's you're destroying. I think that's what you're yeah. trying the point you're making, right, Andy? Right. Well, and I think too, Bob, you and I and, and others, Ron and I have had this conversation internally within the organization of the difficulty and the nuance in managing for quail versus pheasants. Um, nothing, not, pitch, not picking on the ditch chickens at all, 
love them. <laughs> I absolutely love hunting them. But, you know, managing for quail, like when, when we're talking about they are shrubland obligates, they, they need woody mm-hmm. cover. That is not a tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, quail could care less about a tree. They need shrubs. They need low-growing, dense shrub cover. And it's really difficult at times to get people to kind of differentiate those two. Uh, and, and But we are talking low, dense shrubs uh, that they can escape from, whether it's avian predators or, or, or shade. For, you know, not just thermal mm-hmm. cover for the winter, but thermal cover in the summer. Uh, right. Get away from the hot sun. So, yeah. Well, thanks, John. That was a great, yeah, great closing point, John. Yeah, absolutely. Greg? Um, <clears throat> you asked about people and their, their frustrations. Um, I, I think I, I, I've, I've thought about this more than I'd care to admit over the years, I think it's a, of course, a combination of things. And and we all recognize how the landscape has changed. The human population has skyrocketed and land ownerships are, uh, the the land ownership sizes are a fraction of what they used to be. We do not any longer as a society, even in rural uh, Southeastern US, make our, our living off of the land anymore. Uh, I can't remember when that changed, but I think it was like in the in the late 60s or 70s is when when that changed over. Mm-hmm. So the human society is is greatly different. Land ownership uh, sizes are uh, much, much smaller than they were. The infrastructure associated with the human population has just blown up. Quail have less area to live than ever before and that will never improve so don't think it will um and then you have landowners there's there's two different types one that has you know 35 or 70 acres what can i do to manage for quail well unless you get to john's point and all of your neighbors within a large area are managing for quail very very strongly the answer would be nothing there is nothing that you can do. That That's a hard answer to give people. And, and they've done a lot of work on their 50, 60 acres, and they can make it into the perfect quail habitat and see no response whatsoever. And it's all because of what's going on around them. Then on the flip side, there's somebody who has, you know, most often it's going to be 1,500 to 3,500 acres, something like that. And they want to know, what they can do for quail. They've done this and they've done that and nothing seems to improve and, and nothing nothing has worked. And then I go and visit with them and at least 50, if not more usually, 80% of the property is wooded because they also are infatuated with these generalist species, mm-hmm. deer and turkeys. They're also trying to manage for deer on their property. They're also wanting to do all they can for turkeys on their property, and they cannot see clear to clear their woods. Not clear cut, not asking them to regenerate the woods, clear the woods to create quail habitat. That is not something that most of them are willing to do they want to manage for a specialist species on a fraction of their property. And even though, though they own 1,500 to 5,000 acres, they don't have a sufficient amount of contiguous quail habitat to support a good 
huntable number of, of birds. And so I see that very commonly, but it is refreshing, as I mentioned, for uh, properties such as Bridgestone and, and Kiker and, and Wolf River, the WMAs that we have here in Tennessee, where they have maintained good uh, bobwhite populations on properties that are anywhere from about 550 to, uh, to 1,500 acres of contiguous mm-hmm. quail habitat. But guys, that is with a minimal amount of, of woods. And it's, it's broadly acknowledged, if you're trying to manage a property, especially if it's on the small end, with regard to you know holding a good number of birds, you, you you shouldn't be looking to have any more than certainly no more than than 25% of the property in in forest. You you've got to clear those trees as Andy just mentioned, get that knocked back into more of an early successional plant community that has well distributed low woody cover, whether that be by shrubs or or regenerating trees and very, very, very frequent management to keep all that knocked back. Mm-hmm. And the hard truth is there's not many people who are willing or able to put right. that amount of work into it to keep it going. Right. Yep. But I, I would contend. I don't mean to end on a negative note. For, let me, let me no. also say sure. for those who are doing that, they are enjoying a lot of success, but That's right. we, we need to be, you know, very open and transparent with, with these guys and gals who are trying to manage their property for Bob White. Uh, a, a lot of it, a lot of them, it, they're, they're going to be frustrated because the landscape around them just won't allow it. Mm-hmm. You know, but then talking about that 25% com- component in, in trees, if you, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, of course, but I think in those systems where you are creating a, a very low density, you know, low stocking density woodland where you're, you're getting 75%, um, you know, light on the ground. Those can be beautiful. They're very park-like. Yes. And, and, and let me clarify if anybody, uh, misunderstood what I was saying. I'm talking about, uh, no more than 25% of closed canopy. Forest. canopy now, forest, if you're correct. thinning that down to where, and, and Dwayne Elmore and other at Oklahoma state, uh, a few years ago, they, they published a, a really good paper that showed uh, what what we would expect occupancy, you know, if quail are going to occur on an area. Mm-hmm. And unless you have a, a minimum of 50 to 60% sunlight coming in, right. don't even expect occupancy. And then right. it's not going to be an increasing number of birds. To get an increase in number of birds, you're really looking at that, at that uh, upper savanna, low woodland range mm-hmm. where you've got, you know, somewhere between... 20 to 30 percent tree cover and and you're essentially managing a field with a few scattered trees if that makes sense very 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 few trees right um and i think some things that you mentioned that i'd like to pick up on were were that strategic approach if you're including your neighbors if you're able to manage and, and kind of know what's around you um that landscape scale effect is something that we're trying to do um, at Quail Forever, when we're talking about where we would put biologists on the ground, um, we're making a real concerted effort to place our, our new biologists in areas that are <clears throat> that are going to have the greatest effect. And quite honestly, sometimes that does mean that we aren't going to put uh, a biologist in a certain location. And and that's a hard thing to say. And it's a hard, uh, you know, hard truth because there may be people, individuals that are interested in it, but we've got to, we've got to look to maximize our efforts on a, on a landscape scale, whether it be for, for bobwhite quail or Western quail species or pheasants. So, um, 
know that that we're doing that on a on a big scale with this organization with where we're placing people but also know that you know we we can offer some resources out there for you if you're kind of outside of that um, and, that and range. I, I have noticed that and mm-hmm. i think that is very smart to be strategic mm-hmm. uh such as that and and i'll also add this um you know i i work fairly closely with with some of the the field biologists would uh quail forever mm-hmm. And uh, y'all, y'all have some outstanding people in the field. I'm not saying that because I'm sitting here talking with you. I'm, I'm saying it because it's true. But some of them have gotten some heat, uh, a little yeah. flashback from people where they have worked with landowners in areas or maybe the landowner size is, is on the small ends. And, well, mm-hmm. you know, why are you spending time there? Sure. Because there's likely little hope that the quail are going to respond there. You know, I, I just kind of pointed out some of that and I understand that. But what I have tried to point out to those folks are that may be true, but look at the good these guys and gals are doing for all of the other species yeah. that also occur in, in, in what would also be quail habitat. That's and right. so uh, many, many species and, and of course the generalist included deer and turkeys. Uh, by and large, are going to benefit from from quail management. So even though there may not be a strong response on on some of those areas, there certainly is a response and and a a positive one from from many species. And and for somebody who is interested in in, in wildlife diversity, they should consider Mm -hmm. that very important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The the species diversity, that plant community response that comes about by this, this, you know, degree of management, for quail is amazing. Um, yes, both both plants and wildlife. Plants and wildlife, right? Yeah, I think um, I think that's important to note, and I appreciate that. I think our, our people out on the ground are doing great things. Of course, I'm biased, but you know, I see it every day. They're just they're just passionate, and not just about quail. They're passionate botanists. They're passionate birders, and and they love the species diversity that a lot of the work that they get to do out on the out on the land brings about. So, appreciate that. Um, I'd like to, maybe we could throw it into some show notes, but talk about some locations for resources outside of, you know, what we've talked about today, where if they want to learn more, I know, Craig, you've done a whole lot of publications, um, but some resources that we could point them to, to find out more. Um, Well, we have publications available at my website. You know, we all have uh, a website at pretty much all university faculty now have have a website that provides different resources. And, you know, wh- whether it's me or, or anyone who is doing uh, quail and, and quail habitat work, they're going to have something available uh, on, online. And I, I, I don't think ever before has information, science-based information, been more available than it is now. So if, if you're a landowner who is looking to implement some of these practices, uh, the, the, the resources are so much easier to find than they have been previously. You know, right. if you're talking about the 1980s, they're just a, a scant few publications <laughs> sure. that a few people could get their hands on. But right. uh, th- now that's not the case. And and it's turned now to where we're, we're printing less and less and less material and, and you know, just putting everything online for it's people all- to either view or download, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And of course, now, uh, you know, I, I don't know if our attention span is less than it used to be, but <laughs> the, the videos, the, you know, the videos oh, yeah. that are available now are, are just un- unbelievable, you know, yeah. and, and it's like a lot of 
printed stuff. And, and I, I have to say, if it's not, you know, science-based, I would take it with a grain of salt. Okay. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just leave it at that. Sure. Don't, don't, necessarily believe everything you you see and, and hear but uh there, there's lots of good information available through uh video as well all right yeah absolutely okay well we really really appreciate your time today here's ann johns and uh just uh, enjoy talking to you and uh, we absolutely really appreciate Fun to catch you up. yeah absolutely yeah t- thank you very much john and, and dr harper really engaging conversation andy nice job taking over oh it was, it was fun to to go to school with you uh <laughs> for folks that want to um connect with one of our quail forever biologists um please go to quailforever.org under the the tab conservation you can find a find a biologist tab click on that and you can simple as entering your zip code and you'll find uh, the closest QF biologist to you. And you can learn about creating as much diversity, plant diversity on your property for Bob Boy. That was my takeaway. You know, it, it was, you know, I'm a marketing guy and you think about like, you want all oh, your, ha- your, your nesting cover over here, your brood cover over here, your shelter over here. And, you know, just Dr. Harper, your conversation about increasing the amount of diversity and like in mother nature's chaotic right and all of the the habitat mixed together is where you get the magic Uh and it doesn't have to be you know subdivided (laughs) like like we think about our our own world in 2023 you know it can be chaotic and there's that's where the beauty resides for bob white quail um so thank you very much for for bringing that point home for me andy again great job and and folks thanks for listening if you're not yet a quail forever member go to quailforever.org and get signed up Uh, i'm bob st pierre thanking you for listening and reminding you to always follow the dog something good will rise thanks folks good to be